Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the slightly delayed episode 162 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. I've not missed a Tuesday for three years, so you knew this was coming. As reliable as the mighty Leeds United holding on to a three-goal lead. Today's story is from Berkshire and one of the most upsetting I've covered, as one deliberate act had so many unforeseen, terrible consequences for so many people. But before we begin, as always, I want to say a huge thank you to my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That is Rachel Hale, Damian Meller, Alana Kavana, Michelle Neville, Diane, Samantha Collins, Sam Collins, Andrew and Emma Miller, and Umi Ari, who has increased her support. Thank you all so much. Your support is really so, so, so much appreciated. A lot of new supporters this week, and what could be a better Christmas present for those you love, or at least are related to in a way. Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Let's take a look at the music we were listening to at the time of today's story, the 6th of November 2004. Top of the UK charts was Eminem with my least favourite song he ever released, Just Lose It. For all you connoisseurs of the intellectual music video which tells a story, Eric Prides was at 8 with Call On Me. Some say this video was influenced by an existential vision of the world induced by natural disasters affecting the earth in the 1990s. I'm not so sure, are you? In the US, the top spot was held by Usher and Alicia Keys, and top album in Australia this week was Robbie Williams with his greatest hits. Hard to believe he had a greatest hits album out 15 years ago. This was the month that George W. Bush was re-elected President of the US. Yasser Arafat died. World of Warcraft was released. One for all you party animals out there. And Lion Air Flight 538 crashed in Java, Indonesia, killing 26 people. The UK Parliament this year passed the Hunting Act, banning fox hunting in England and Wales. How I wish they would enforce that act with the vigour that they enforce other, less important legislation. Brian Drysdale was born in Liverpool on the 10th of February 1956, one of three children. His dad, Keith, initially worked as a machinist in the dry cleaners, but the family moved from Liverpool to Hales Owen in the Midlands and he changed jobs, starting a roofing and a building company. His wife, Etna, was company secretary and looked after the admin for the business. Brian was a quiet child who didn't make friends easily. But his one passion in life was Liverpool Football Club and he and his dad were regular visitors to Anfield to watch matches, where his dad retained a season ticket. And in his adult life, when he was quite socially awkward, people who knew Brian would say that he was a different man when he spoke about his beloved football team. In 1984, Brian had moved south to Reading, 
and he became a chef, working in a number of different places. Life was pretty tough for Brian, and he struggled to hold down a steady job, and he moved around a lot. One colleague said of him, He was a strange sort of chap. You could hardly get a word out of him. It took him ages for he'd even say hello to me. And another said, He used to have funny moods sometimes. He was okay one minute, and then the next he might bite your head off for the slightest thing. He was very open about the fact he was gay. He had a steady partner, but they split up while I knew him. But Brian wasn't open with everyone about his sexuality. Thankfully, it is, I would suggest, easier to open up about all aspects of your life today. But like many people of that generation, Brian struggled to open up to some of his family and friends that he was gay. In Reading, he did have some sort of a social life, mainly frequenting the gay pubs and bars of the city, where people tended to remember him as not very talkative, but someone who who liked a drink or two. By November 2004, Brian's mental health was deteriorating. Colleagues noticed his behaviour becoming more erratic, and he'd complained of being persecuted by menacing voices from a window. On the 5th of November 2004, Brian phoned NHS Direct and told the operator he might have HIV after a one-night stand with a man five years previously. He said he'd had suicidal thoughts and described feeling his head cracking and said, I think I'm having a bit of a nervous breakdown to be honest. And the next day, November the 6th, he attempted to phone the hospital where he'd been tested a number of times for the HIV infection. But the clinic was closed as it was Saturday and so frustratingly for Brian he wasn't able to get through. And so Brian headed to work at Wakefield Park Conference Centre and Golf Club with this uncertainty dominating his thoughts. It was just a normal shift for Brian and none of his colleagues noticed anything different about him on that Saturday in November. But Brian had decided that today was the day when he was going to end his life. He finished work at 5.30pm and drove his silver Mazda saloon the usual route home, which about 40 minutes later took him to the level crossing at the rural Berkshire village of Ufton Nervet. Brian stopped on the track, reversed a little to ensure his car was in the right position to meet the oncoming train and he turned off his engine. Approaching the level crossing at full speed was the 1735 Great Western train service from London Paddington to Plymouth, which was carrying 300 passengers, all blissfully unaware that their lives were about to change forever. The train had stopped at Reading at 6pm and was on its way to the next scheduled stop at Newbury. The high-speed train was made up of eight coaches, designed to be robust in a crash, and two diesel engines. It was due to arrive in Plymouth at 9.14 that evening. The train never made it to Plymouth. Off-duty police officer Mark Brazier was in the area of the level crossing as the clock approached 6.15pm and he watched in horror as he saw Brian's car being manoeuvred onto the tracks, its engine being switched off and the barriers going down. Convinced he was watching a suicide but with no power to stop it, he raced down to a trackside phone to try to stop the rapidly approaching train 
but he'd only just picked it up when, too late, the terrible noise as the train hit the car he could never forget. And worse was to come. For following the collision, the train continued and all eight coaches derailed. And finally, the rear of the 220 metre intercity 125 train came to rest about 100 metres beyond the crossing. For a split second, all was silent until the dreadful screaming and crying of those in pain pierced the cold November night. 24-year-old Mario Lotti was a passenger on the train and he later gave his perspective to the BBC about what had happened from inside the train. At first it just went all black. Some other passengers were trying to calm people down in the carriage. We also had a priest in there. He was saying please remain calm. Two guys in my car managed to get the hammers and break out of the top windows as the carriage was on its side. I managed to get out through the door at the back. One person was close to the windows and went through and got trapped underneath the train. It was very unpleasant. Some girls in front of me had their faces covered in blood and I remember someone saying they'd a broken arm. I guess that 20 to 30 people were trapped in that carriage. Inside the carriage there was glass everywhere. The really dramatic thing was people were flashing their mobiles to see in the dark. For some, this kind of thing happens very quickly, but for me it happened very slowly. At first it felt like we were going over a bump, like hitting something. A couple of seconds later, the train tilted. You felt something was definitely not right. I heard the noise of the wheels screeching very loud. There was broken glass all over the track. The whole thing tilted to the left side of the tracks. My carriage remained on the tracks but on its side sliding along. I could see some people at the side of the tracks. I saw one carriage smashed in completely. It was a big pile of wreckage. As far as I can recall some people were struggling with broken legs and arms but 95% seemed to be without major injuries which is great. It's unbelievable to think you could go through that kind of thing and even survive. Mario was one of the lucky ones. Around 100 people were injured in the collision, 12 seriously. But tragically, the driver and five passengers lost their lives. Those people were train driver Stanley Martin, aged 54, 14-year-old Emily Webster, 38-year-old Anjanette Rossi, and her daughter, aged nine, Luella Maine, Leslie Charlie Matthews, aged 72, and Barry Strevens, who was 55 when he died. Anjanette Rossi was a governor at her nine-year-old daughter, Luella Maine's school. Both had boundless enthusiasm, energy, and love for the school, and we will miss them enormously, said the primary school's head teacher. Anjanette's partner, David Maine, later told how Anjanette and Luella had been shopping and missed their first train home. He was waiting at Newbury Station but could not get hold of them by phone. He said how earlier that day he had dropped Anjanette and his daughter at Newbury Station so they could spend the day enjoying themselves shopping and reading. He said, When Anjanette phoned and said she'd missed the train, I said, Look, I'll come and pick you up. She said, No, we enjoy the train. We will have a coffee. He then waited with his son to collect them at Newbury Station. 
He said he saw a train coming the other way, which people were getting off, and it was announced there had been an incident. Then I knew that something was wrong, and I tried to ring Anjanette, but she didn't answer. Then I knew that something was seriously wrong. The train driver, 54-year-old Stanley Martin, did everything correctly, but he was unable to save himself or his passengers. From Torquay, he was buried alive in mud and shingle when his cab overturned and skidded along the ground. He'd worked as a train driver for 30 years. His wife, Deborah, described him as one in a million, saying, Stan was a dedicated family man who loved his family as they loved him. He had joined the railway in 1965 as a cleaner in Birmingham and become a driver in 1974. He joined the Plymouth Driver Depot in 1991 and moved to Exeter with First Great Western in 1996. 55-year-old Barry Stravens from Wells, Somerset, lived with his partner Jacqueline and two sons, Ollie, aged just two, and Toby, only five months. He also had two grown-up daughters. A family statement later said, Barry was a wonderfully kind, generous and gentle man with a vibrant sense of humour. Leslie Charles Matthews, aged 72, from Warminster in Wiltshire, known as Charlie, was due at a bonfire party that evening with his two children and four grandchildren after watching his beloved Reading Football Club. He died in hospital a day later. Anyone who knew Charlie will remember his sense of humour and his friendly, sociable personality, said his family. And Emily Webster, just aged 14, from Morton Hampstead, Devon, had been travelling on the train with a school friend. Her friends are planning to build up a book of remembrance about Emily and the way that she used to keep them amused, said the deputy head at her school in Exeter. The stories of the first people on the scene were just horrendous. What they saw, heard and smelt will never leave them. In this podcast, I'm afraid I don't have time to cover them all. But please do read online about the great work done by so many. For example, Charmin Bacchus, a passenger on the train, spoke to the BBC of her gratitude to a Royal Marine called Tom, who stayed with her and helped her stay alive after a section of the train crushed her from her lower body. It's definitely thanks to Tom that I'm here, said Charmin, who was treated at the Royal Berkshire Hospital for cracked ribs, a cracked pelvis and bruising. I just can't thank him enough. My mind just seems to be wandering to very strange things and I just thought, no, don't go there. I just kept listening to Tom. I was so scared if I closed my eyes, I would fall asleep, then that would be it. I didn't think I was going to get out. Her rescuer, 34-year-old Tom McPhee, was a Royal Marine, married with two children and recently returned from serving in Iraq, revealed that he was very shocked at being able to prevent nine-year-old Luella Maine from bleeding to death. He and his friend Brian Kelmsley, both from Exmouth and Devon, were returning from watching their football team, Chelsea, and were in the buffet carriage when the crash happened. The pair found Luella bleeding, and Tom put his jumper around her head in an attempt to stem the flow of blood, but was unable to save her. It's a tough pill to swallow, but I couldn't have helped the little girl more than I did, said Tom. Returning to the carriage, they heard crying and crawled through the debris to find Charmin trapped from the waist down. They stayed with her for half an hour, 
asking her about her boyfriend and joking about going out for a pint later to keep her conscious until paramedics arrived. Then they helped to carry about half a dozen people to safety where they were treated by another Royal Marine travelling on the train. Brian Drysdale was also killed at the scene and his parents had to be told of his death. It was a wet Monday afternoon when his mum answered the door to find two uniformed police officers standing there. His mum instantly sensed us about her son crying, it's Brian, something has happened to Brian. She collapsed in tears as she and her husband were informed that their youngest son had been retrieved from the wreckage of the car that caused the rail disaster. A member of the kitchen staff at the Wokefield Park Conference Centre where Brian worked reiterated that no one had noticed anything unusual in his behaviour on the day he died. We're very surprised and very shocked by what has happened. Brian seemed quite normal on Saturday. There was just no clue as to what he was going to do. A full three years after the tragedy, the inquest took place. The central question to be answered was whether Brian Drysdale was a depressed, delusional man who believed he was dying of AIDS, who parked his car on the line to end his own life, or was the crash a tragic accident caused by his car cutting out at the wrong place as he drove through the unmanned automatic level crossing. Dr Philip Joseph, a consultant forensic psychiatrist, said he may have believed that he was already dying of AIDS. In fact, he died without finding out that he did not have the disease. The test results came back negative a few days later. But people close to Brian, including his brother Ronald and his friend Tim Burton, were convinced it was an accident and not a suicide attempt. Ronald Drysdale said, Brian had a history of purchasing second-hand cars that to me didn't seem fit to be on the road. That particular car he paid just a few hundred pounds for. Tim Burton agreed that he thought his friend's car was the main factor in the crash, saying, He didn't do it intentionally. I just think it was a fatal accident, which probably could have been prevented if his car was in better condition. I know his car had problems with the fuel and the accelerator, and it kept cutting out. By the time he tried to restart the car on the tracks and get out of the passenger side, I think it was too late. A workmate of Brian's, Sean Patterson, told how Brian had enjoyed watching a video of the 2001 rail disaster at Selby when a Land Rover rolled onto the tracks derailing a high-speed train. He said, In hindsight, about two weeks before, there was a documentary on the TV about the guy who fell asleep in the Land Rover and rolled down the bank. He made reference to watching that documentary. He said he'd really enjoyed it. Sean also said that Brian had complained that his manager, Laurent Bunier, had picked on him. The inquest heard that Brian filed a complaint with Thames Valley Police four days before the train crash, claiming that Laurent Bunier had been around his house making threats toward him. But Laurent told the inquest this came as a shock to him, so he did not even know where Brian had lived. He didn't give me any signs he was troubled by me, he said. The inquest was told that Brian was a heavy drinker who took cannabis and ecstasy. However, toxicology tests found no presence of drink or drugs in his body. After a four-week inquest, the jurors unanimously decided that Brian had stopped at the level crossing to commit suicide. 
returning verdicts of unlawful killing for the train driver and the five passengers who died in the tragedy. Speaking following the jury's decision, Berkshire coroner Peter Bedford said, The collision with the car started a chain of events that led to the tragic deaths of the people in this incident. And despite the contention of the bereaved families and the train driver's union that the accident could have been prevented, Coroner Bedford declined to make safety recommendations to train operators First Great Western, saying action was already being taken. But the parents of Anjanette Rossi issued a plea to Network Rail to ensure no repeat of the accident. Paula Rossi said, This tragedy could have been avoided and saved so many broken hearts, with her husband adding, I don't want anyone to go through what we have been through. Safety on the railway must now be paramount, said Peter Webster, who lost his 14-year-old daughter, Emily, and had campaigned for improved rail safety, including laminated glass and emergency lighting. I wish it had been me and not her, but life is a lottery, and there's nothing I can do about what happened, he said. All I could do was to use the lessons that I so vividly learnt to ensure this does not happen again. There are a lot of Drysdales around, and what is important is to try to protect people from their actions. According to Wikipedia, after the crash in 2004, there were deaths at the same level crossing in 2009, 2010, 2012 and 2014. The crash we have spoken about today and the subsequent deaths and also some near misses at the level crossing and the ceaseless work by survivors of the tragedy, Jane Hawker and Julie Lloyds, prompted a safety review by Network Rail of the level crossing. And the decision was finally made in April 2015 to remove the level crossing to replace it with a bridge. Work started on the bridge in April of that year and officially opened to the traffic on Friday, December the 16th, 2016, with a ceremony, including the regional director for Network Rail, survivors of the crash, the crews who built the bridge, and villagers from Ufton Nervet. So what do you make of what we've heard today? The personal stories of those who died or were seriously injured are just harrowing, and the nightmare that they, their friends and families went through just lives on for them all today. And how do you feel about Brian Drysdale? Although at the inquest it was argued that the car had just cut out, this clearly wasn't the case. There is some evidence that he sat on the tracks for some time before the train hit. And it's also been suggested he even sat looking at the level crossing in the days leading to the tragedy. However hard it is for his friends and family to accept, and they're grieving too of course, and although he had no intention to hurt other people, his actions did lead to the deaths of others. I saw someone jump on the train tracks at Bath this summer as a freight train approached, and it was just an awful experience, so I can't even comprehend what the impact was like in this story today. If you search on the long-term effects on train drivers who have had the misfortune to see someone on the tracks, it's just awful, they never recover. Of course, when someone chooses to end their own life, it's terrible terrible thing and we can't comprehend what they're going through but jumping in front of a fast moving object car train whatever it is can have so many catastrophic effects for others too 
I think that in every aspect, today's story is terribly difficult and upsetting. And we can only wish those affected well in dealing with their loss. Just be grateful that level crossing is now gone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this episode or any other aspects of UK True Crime, please head to our Facebook group. And to support the show, learn more about the sauna scene in Rochdale and share insights from various musicians who are, of course, friends of the show, please head to patreon.com forward slash a UK true crime. Or else just waste your small change on alcohol, great food. Yeah, okay. All right, point taken. On that bombshell, I will leave you for another week. Keep enjoying the Christmas music, especially those of you who have it on loop if you work in retail. That's pretty hard going. And of course, despite all the others, do please stay classy. Cheerio for now. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 